podcasting worldwide via the Internet from Lakeland, Florida. This is Whitfield Radio's Calvinism Today program. And now, here is your host, the founder and president of Whitfield Theological Seminary and senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Lakeland, Florida, Dr. Kenneth G. Talbot. Welcome to our podcast, Calvinism Today. This show is dedicated to the preservation of historic Calvinistic theology in our churches. We shall also deal with misconceptions of Calvinism and its continual drift away from those claiming to be Calvinist, some identified today as neo-Calvinist, but in reality they're not Calvinistic at all. My co-host is Dr. Matthew McMahon, president of A Puritan's Mind, a website dedicated to maintaining the teachings of the Reformed and Puritan theologians. Dr. Matt is also a minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church General Assembly. Welcome, Dr. Matt, once again to another show, and thank you for your participation as a co-host with us. Well, Dr. Talbot, thank you for having me. I always enjoy talking about Reformed theology and the doctrines of grace. Our producer is Dr. Bill Sullivan. Dr. Bill, it's good to have you with us again, too. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the show. Well, our show today is entitled Augustine and the Doctrines of Grace, and I've actually asked Dr. McMahon if he would actually give us a complete presentation on Augustine, and we will interact with uh, his presentation as we look at some of the emphasis that eventually, identified by Calvin, turn out to be some of those theological teachings that are adopted, refined, with greater specificity by Calvin himself. So if you would, Dr. Matt, take over the show today and uh, give us a little intro to Augustine, and then let's move on to your research. Well, Augustine is what we would consider one of the more important figures in the history of the church, uh, especially the time that he lived, 354 to 430, he is voluminous in his writings. Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, even people today reading his works are amazed at how much he wrote. He was uh, a philosopher. He was a theologian that lived in uh, current-day Algeria from Africa, and his writings were very influential in the development of Western Christianity. Um, even according to his contemporary Jerome, Augustine, quote, established the ancient faith. And in a day when there was lots of turmoil going on, Augustine met that head on in a number of different areas, a number of different ways, having a background in his early years, uh, very influenced by Manichaeism, and afterwards by Neoplatonism of Plotinus, uh, he was converted to Christianity and baptized in 387 A.D. And he developed a biblical approach uh, with the keen mind that he had to philosophy and theology. Uh, his father uh, was a pagan, and his mother, Monica, was a Christian. And she prayed for him, uh, and prayed for him constantly. He uh, gives a, a great uh, importance to what his mother did in praying for him in his conversion, because even according to his confessions, which remains uh, probably one of the most widely read works in medieval philosophy, both for philosophers and theologians and even non-philosophers, uh, philosophers, 
It's, uh, his confessions are hailed as really, you know, the first real autobiography and, uh, as a spiritual biography. And he talks quite a bit of what his mother did in praying for him and the influences that she had on him. And so Augustine is a very important biblical, uh, a biblically based historical figure for us, uh, especially with the fact that the Reformers, the Puritans, uh, the Princeton theologians, m- most people who revolve around the Reform circle and are in any kind of Calvinistic thought know about Augustine. They know about his writings, what he did, the things that he said. Calvin quotes him so much, uh, much of what's found in the Institutes is really Augustine. Uh, we would say, in following, for example, the Institutes of the Christian Religion that Calvin wrote, uh, we would say we're Calvinists following that. Well, if we ask Calvin what he would be, he would say he's an Augustinian. Mm-hmm. And if and then if we asked Augustine what he was, he would say, well, I'm a Christian following the Bible. <laughs> so uh, really, you have in reform circles two large influential figures, Calvin and Augustine. And really, it goes back to Calvin following Augustine and reformulating or formulating a bit clearer or better some of the things that Augustine said, although, which I find very interesting, even when you read some of the quotes that we'll go over, it sounds like you're just reading one of the reformers. It doesn't sound like you're reading somebody in the fourth century. It sounds like you're reading somebody who's really uh, taken everything that's been out there, as Calvin had done or as Luther had done uh, or as some of the Puritans had done, and you were reading some updated material. But I think... Uh, staggeringly, once we look at some of these things, it just sounds like you're reading the Reformed faith, which the point of that being uh, that the gospel doesn't change. Uh, and Dr. Matt, um, let me just ask you a quick question, because I think it's historically um, significant that Augustine is recognized as, first, one of the most developed uh, teachers in hermeneutics, because for him, the interpretation of Scripture is key to really bringing out of the scripture that which is being taught. Now, it's not that he had a perfect hermeneutical system, but clearly was a much higher developed system up to that time. Plus, he began to not just teach a theology, but he became more what we would call a systematician. He would weave all the intricacies of systematic theology, all of those systems of theology, into various aspects of life, within the various teachings of the faith. And and that really is what distinguishes him uh, within the church, as you said, as one of the two great systematicians in the church, two of the greatest known theologians. As we look back in history, we tend to look at Augustine, then at Calvin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, when he wrote, uh, Augustine wrote on Christian doctrine, he wrote that as a guide to interpreting the Bible. And fundamental to the manner in which he interpreted things uh, was distinguishing things that are literal and dealing things that are figurative and uh, what the Bible said in those different passages and understanding how hermeneutics worked. Uh, 
Augustine had to first deal with really having a system to be able to do that, uh, which leads into obviously good interpretation and, and exegesis of taking what's in the scripture out instead of just, you know, allegorizing it or, or reading something into it. Right. So he's, he's fundamental on that point to make sure that good hermeneutics is done, because without that, then you're, you're going to have bad theology. Right, exactly. So uh, we could definitely talk about Augustine's life and who he was and all of those intricacies. Uh, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of books about Augustine that way. Uh, but instead of doing that, having that little bit of an overview, why don't we talk about uh, Augustine's theology? Sounds good to me. Let's do it. Okay. In dealing with the doctrines of grace, uh, maybe just what we'll do is talk about a couple of fundamental points that were paradigms for Augustine. Uh, for example, uh, the Enchiridion, again, Augustine wrote a lot of works. Uh, one of the ones that is cited often is the Enchiridion, and that is just a fancy word that means a manual or handbook of the Christian faith. And in there, he has a number of uh, maxims or paradigms that he uses, uh, one of which, in dealing with the doctrines of grace, since we're going to focus on that, he says this in section 103 in the Enchiridion, the omnipotent God has not willed anything to be done which was not done. For setting aside of all ambiguities, if he hath done all that he pleased in heaven and earth, quoting Psalm 115, 3, as the psalmist sings of him, he certainly did not will to do anything that he hath not done. So for Augustine, as he'll say in Article 8, what happens contrary to his will occurs in a wonderful and ineffable way, not apart from his will, for it would not happen if he didn't allow it. And yet he does not allow it unwillingly, but willingly. And he talks quite a bit about God's will, that everything that happens is done according to the good pleasure of God's will. And in dealing with Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, he doth whatsoever he pleases. He quotes him here, he hath done all that he pleased in heaven and in earth. So there's never anything that occurs outside of God's absolute sovereign control over everything. Again, this is uh, Augustine interpreting the Psalms, and as we'll see, Paul and Christ, in having God as the supreme sovereign ruler of the universe, down to every minute detail. So, as we're looking at this paradynamic position, what you're saying is, for Augustine, probably one of the more central themes is the sovereignty of God which is interesting because that's exactly what Calvin's most central theme was, in spite of people thinking it was predestination, it was not. Calvin said that the paradigm of understanding correct doctrine is the sovereignty of God, as it is derived from the teaching of the Scripture. And so you're saying with Augustine, this is for him as well, that key paradigm from which probably Calvin derived his own thinking. Exactly. Uh, Calvin is a fabulous copycat. <laughs> and he copied Augustine. And Augustine is a fabulous copycat because all he did was copy Paul. And in doing that, uh, you have the central 
important theme of God's sovereignty overarching everything that goes on. Uh, once you establish that, then you're going to establish the wickedness, sinfulness, and position of man in opposition to God's absolute, perfect, sovereign will over the earth and how man is opposed to that, which is one of the reasons why uh, one of his most famous works, along with the confessions, is the city of God. Uh, and Augustine, in the city of God, just to give a very brief overview of that, is that there's, there's two cities. There's the city in which God rules, the kingdom of God in which he rules, uh, which encompasses everything. Uh, but you also have the city of man, and what he's dealing with there is not that there, there's this counterpart city over and against the kingdom which God has set up, but that man in and of himself rejects the way that God has set up his city and the way that he talks about it and has his own prideful humanity that is in opposition to everything that God does uh, until, of course, he's changed and regenerated. So he, he finds these two cities uh, in terms of salvation warring against one another. Uh, so keeping in mind that we've got the sovereignty of God over everything that happens, you have man bucking against that every step of the way as a result of the fall. And Augustine very precisely and extensively deals with original sin, that man is fallen. And in this next quote, in which uh, we're dealing with from his work, a treatise on the predestination of the saints, he talks about how there's this difference between human beings and their prideful, evil, wicked ways, and how God changes those evil human beings into be vessels of mercy that then reside in his sovereignty in the city of God instead of bucking against it in the city of man. Let me, just for clarification, before you go on and do that, what you're saying is, is the kingdom of God is supreme because God is sovereign. Man in rebellion is, is rejecting the kingdom. He is not capable of setting up another kingdom that is parallel to the kingdom of God, but he's trying to build a kingdom under the sovereignty of God that rejects God, but in the end, of course, is doomed to failure. So that there's not really two kingdoms that are parallel to each other, one realm being, as St. Thomas would call in his dialectic, the realm of the secular and the realm of the spiritual, but rather everything is under the, the crown rights of God's authority and sovereignty, all things are spiritual, whether they are either in conformity to God or in conformity to satanic influence, humanism, whatever you want to use in more of the modern terminology. But it is that story of the king, you know, because we talk about in theology, Dr. Matt, when we preach about the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, it's not that the gates of hell are charging us, but as we are charging through the world to build the kingdom of God, expand it to the preaching of the gospel, it cannot stop and thwart God's intended purpose to bring all kingdoms and authority under his sovereign control. And so that kingdom you're talking about, as you kind of express it there, it's within the other kingdom. It's trying to free itself, but it is incapable of doing that very thing. Correct. Correct. And that was um, an important paradigm for Augustine, because 
of his own in the confessions of his own thoughts concerning how wicked he was mm-hmm. uh, in just stealing a piece of fruit, uh, taking a fruit from a piece, uh, piece of fruit from a tree. He talks extensively about that in his confessions as a young man doing that, and he was so shamed by that. Oh, what's the big deal? Taking a piece of fruit, walking through somebody's yard. No, it's it was understanding how man's nature and how his 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 pride was so against who God was that the only way that such a change could be made in man is that God has to make men differ one from the other. And that was part of his understanding of God's sovereignty. And that's uh, just echoing the Apostle Paul in Christ, and as we'll see, some of these others. Very good. Uh, But uh, in the predestination of the saints, uh, which is a a really, a very reformed document, uh, he says this, In this, the Apostle's most evident intention in which he speaks against human pride, so that none should glory in man but in God, it is too absurd, as I think, to suppose God's natural gifts, whether man's entire and perfected nature itself, as it was bestowed on him in his first state, or the remains, whatever there may be of his degraded nature. For it is by such gifts as these, which are common to all men, that men are distinguished from men. But here, he first said, who maketh thee to differ? And what he's doing here is he's making a, a contrast between the regenerate man and the unregenerate man. Uh-huh. And, and so he says, And what hast thou that thou hast not received? Quoting Paul. Because a man puffed up against another might say, My faith makes me to differ. Right? That's natural man's religion. Something that I did, I believed, I did something that makes me to differ than the other person who didn't do that. So he says, or my righteousness, something that I worked, or anything else of the kind. In reply to such notions, the good teacher says, but what hast thou that thou hast not received? So he's quoting Paul saying, no, no, you can't be thinking about my faith makes me to differ, my righteousness makes me to differ, something I did makes me to differ. And so he says, and from whom, but from him, that's God, who maketh thee to differ from another, on whom he bestowed not what he bestowed on thee. Now if, says he, thou hast received it, why dost thou glory as if thou received it not? Is he concerned, I ask, about anything else, save that he who glorieth should glory in the Lord? But nothing is so opposed to this feeling for anyone to glory concerning his own merits in such a way as if he made himself, had made them for himself and not of the grace of God. A grace, however, which makes the good to differ from the wicked and is not common to the good and the wicked. So what he's saying is there is this differing factor between regenerate and unregenerate. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that somebody does, my faith makes me to differ. It's not something that somebody works, my righteousness makes me to differ. He says, why are you acting that way? Because it's based on what God does. God is the one who makes thee to differ. And so he says, the difference is grace. It makes the good to differ from the wicked. Mm-hmm. And he quotes, he goes down and he quotes Second Thessalonians 3, 2, and talks a little bit more about what uh, Paul had said, who hath made thee to differ, and what hast thou that thou receivest not? 
For though the capacity to have faith is of nature, it is also of nature to have it, for all men have not faith. So he quotes Thessalonians. All men don't have faith. Right. So it's, it's not something that's just in men to be able to exercise or do. He says, although all men have the capacity to have faith, but the apostle doesn't say, and what hast thou capacity to have, the capacity to have which thou receivest not. He doesn't say that. But he says, and what hast thou which thou receivest not. So it's something that they have to receive, not something that they have and that they have to then the capacity to use. Right. So what's the difference? He says, well, you, you have to have faith, even as to have love. This belongs to the grace of believers. That nature, therefore, in which is given to us the capacity of having faith does not distinguish man from man, but faith itself makes the believer to differ from the unbeliever. And so when it said, who maketh thee to differ? And what hast thou that thou received not? If anyone dare to say, I have faith of myself, I did not therefore receive it. He directly contradicts this most manifest truth. Not because it's not in the choice of men's will to believe or not to believe, but because in the elect, the will is prepared by the Lord. So. Thus, moreover, the passage for who maketh thee to differ and what hast thou that thou receivest not refers to that very faith, which is in the will of man. That's in the predestination of the saints, chapter 10. So what he's saying fundamentally is that men have the ability to have the capacity of faith if God gives it to them. Right. And the thing that makes it different is that sometimes in God's sovereignty, he gives faith to some and allows them to exercise that once they have it, and to others, he doesn't give it to them. As he said, this only belongs to the grace of believers. So there's a differentiation between people, sheep and goats, save and lost, and the, who makes thee to differ? Well, God makes them to differ. He's the one that makes faith or non-faith. Thus, predestination is subservient to the very doctrine of the sovereignty of God because it is God who sovereignly has willed this to come to pass and has so ordered it according to the desire of his own thought. Therefore, his will is established in carrying out these very principles. Correct. Um, he says in uh, the predestination of the saints, chapter 13, he says, we see that many come to the Son because we see that many believe on Christ. But when and how they have heard this from the Father and have learned, well, we see not. It is true that grace is exceedingly secret, but who doubts that it is grace? This grace, therefore, which is hiddenly bestowed in human hearts by the divine gift is rejected by no hard heart because it is given for the sake of the first taking away the hardness of heart, which is, that's fabulous. Yes. And what he's saying is that grace and this changed heart is hiddenly done by God. What is the, what is the, what is the process that God uses? He's, we don't know that. We don't know how God specifically does that. We know that it's by the word, but we don't know what the spirit does to go in there and change or that, that motive of change. But what he does is he says, listen, this is a divine gift. And it's not even rejected 
by a hard heart because the divine gift actually is there for the sake of changing the hardness of heart. Right. Which is exactly what God does. He goes into the heart, he changes the heart, and gives it the capacity for true, real, believing gospel faith. And then, because it has been changed in that capacity, he thus makes them children and vessels of mercy, which he has prepared for glory, which is what he quotes at the end of that paragraph. So he takes away the heart of stone, he gives them a heart of flesh. And that is the declaration of the prophet, as he has promised, as Augustine says. And so he's saying that not only is this is the next step, not only is God sovereign to therefore give the capacity to have faith, but it's a divine gift. The faith itself is the gift. And it is all of grace. That's in in an important point here. Uh, In spite of what we would consider errant positions as Augustine is developing a a true systematic theology for probably the first time in the history of the church. And we know there are areas that we would say now we have uh, more specifically redefined and and recouched the terminology. But it is because of this emphasis of all of grace. Everything you have, everything that you've received, everything that you are, even the capacity and the way that God hath created you, that he can put faith there through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, through all of that, it never ceases to be that it is a work of God's grace, period. Right. The natural progression at that point to say, okay, God is sovereign. Men have the capacity to have faith if God gives the divine gift to them so that they might exercise it because he's going to change their heart. The, the thinking person at that point hits Augustine's next chapter where he says this. Why, then, does he not teach all that they may come to Christ, except because all whom he teaches, he teaches in mercy, while those whom he teaches not in judgment, he teaches not, since on whom he will, he has mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. And he jumps right to Romans 9. So not only does he talk about God being sovereign, but he also talks about the outworking of what that sovereignty means if not everybody goes to heaven. Uh, you know, he sort of introduces the question a little bit. Why doesn't he just uh, save everybody? Why doesn't he just give everybody this saving faith? Uh, and he answers it in the same way that Paul does. Well, on whom God wills, he has mercy. And on whom God wills, he's also going to harden. And he does that out of his sovereignty. And we need to be okay with God's sovereignty. And that's part and parcel of why uh, Augustine's train of thought goes in this way. He hits that point, and he wants people to understand that once we start questioning that, we're jumping backwards into that human pride aspect. You know, what what makes us better? What makes us good? What makes us greater? What makes us uh, deserve not? And he's he's driving home that the sovereign God of the universe has the ability as the potter to do whatsoever he wills with that clay. Some he's going to have mercy, some he hardens, and we need to be okay with that. Exactly. He, in essence, he's coming back and he's saying to them, because God is sovereign, 
We must see all eventual outworkings, whether it is a vessel to honor or one to be made for dishonor. Those were his sovereign choices. That it is not up to the vessels. It is uh, not up to anything other than God himself. This is all God's territory. The outcome of why some are condemned is because it was according to the sovereign pleasure of God. Why some are redeemed it is because of the the uh, sovereignty of God's pleasure. And therefore, in that way, he really is in, incorporating every aspect of existence at the very command of God. Nothing. Nothing. And this is where a believer can hang his security in the teaching of the Word of God. Everything is hung on the very sovereignty of God and that nothing comes to pass that is not according to his will and how he hath determined it and how it, the outcome comes therefore. Therefore, we don't put our hope in men. We don't put our hope in institutions. We don't put hope in ourselves. But we can only put our hope in a sovereign God who the scripture says does all things well. Right, right. Up until uh, about chapter 34, it's almost like uh, all of this is an introductory lesson Yes. before he starts talking about uh, how some of these things work, the special calling of the elect. Well, listen to what he says in chapter 23, which is still sort of in his intro to all of these ideas. He says, but all this reasoning, whereby we maintain that the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord is truly grace, that is, is not given according to our merits, although it is most manifestly asserted by the witness of divine declarations, yet among those who think that they are withheld from all zeal for piety unless they can attribute to themselves something, which they first give, that it may be recompensed to them again, involves somewhat of a difficulty in respect of the condition of grown-up people who are already exercising the choice of will. But when we come to the case of infants, he uses infants as an example, and to the mediator between God and man himself, the man Christ Jesus, there is wanting all assertion of human merits that precede the grace of God, because the former are not distinguished from others by any preceding good merits that they should belong to the deliverer of men, any more than he himself, being himself a man, was made the deliverer of men by virtue of any precedent human merits. So he's, he's saying here, listen, before we get into the nitty-gritty of dealing with election, which he's going to deal with in just a couple of chapters, and really getting into how those work, he says, I really want you to understand that when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about grace, it's not according to merit for men to think that they can do something and get into heaven. And what he does is he goes to the, to the case of infants, and, you know, elect infants dying in infancy go to heaven, not because of anything that they've done, not because of anything that they've accomplished. They are infants that die. They haven't done anything, so to speak, yet to be able to merit anything. Uh, they're born in Adam, and they need to be saved. And as a result of being under the covenant curse, it's the mediator given grace to them that allows them to go to heaven. So he uses that as a, okay, let's, let's get these introductory matters settled so that we can start talking about some of the more particulars because these basic concepts need to be understood 
Because if you don't understand the basics, you're never going to understand the intricacies of things. You have to set the context in order to understand how these processes are going to work out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But here the emphasis of this is clearly reformational thinking. This is how Calvin thinks. This is how your confessions speak to the sovereignty of God. It speaks to the grace of God. It speaks to the fact that nothing men can bring to the bar of God can in any way somehow bring a meritorious favor of God to them in their redemption. It's nothing they can, they can't synthesize it. It must be totally a work of grace. And then he moves, as you say, to this point of saying, what of the elect infant? What of him who dies, who has not been able to have done anything himself? How will you explain that over against using the concept of grown men? And it's a very good argument in that time period because what you have is someone has to give a an understanding of how these two would relate to each other within the same context of God's sovereignty and grace. And, and thus, he's taken the argument from them. Because if you're going to argue merit, then you must argue merit across the board for everyone who dies in order for them to achieve some standing with God. If not, it must then be all of grace. Correct. Dr. Matt, is this uh, what Paul was saying then with uh, Esau and uh, Jacob? Oh, yes. When you're dealing with the way that Paul sets up Romans and begins talking, you know, he's he's arguing a bit. Uh, from this Jewish mindset, well, we have Abraham, and Abraham was a Gentile. You could hear the Jews saying, well, you got to start somewhere. God had to start with somebody. <laughs> he says, well, okay. Uh, and then you get uh, Isaac, and Isaac was, uh, you know, Abraham's son, uh, but he hadn't been changed to Israel. That's going to happen a couple of children later. Uh, he's still... Uh, dealing with settling the Israelite line. So you got the son of a Gentile. And while God has to establish these things as well, you know, God chose Abraham, saved a Gentile. God chose Isaac, saved him. And then he gets to Jacob and Esau. He says, listen, two full-blooded Jewish people, right? So we have two full-blooded Jewish people. And God saves one, loves him, and hates the other. And Paul is basically pointing his finger in that way. He said, what do you do with that? What do you do when you hit Jacob and Esau? Because you got two full-blooded Jews. One of them's elect and one of them's not. That's where, you know, you really have to deal with the part of the reasoning that he has in that chapter in talking in Romans 9 about how that election works. He says, you know, the the vessels prepared for destruction are there for the benefit of those prepared for glory. That's that's somewhat of a hard concept to deal with, emotionally speaking, not intellectually speaking, but emotionally speaking, when you as a saved, regenerate believer look at your next door neighbor, or maybe your mom, or maybe your dad, and say, you know, it it may be because you don't know, it may be that they're a, a, a vessel fitted to, for destruction, and if that's the case, they're there for my benefit. 
so that we could see, experience, and understand the power of God's grace and glory to us, which is a staggering idea. It's a staggering idea for me in thinking about it. You know, um, he says, it's not of him that wills. It's not of him that runs. It's God who shows mercy. And so he uses the idea of Pharaoh, even for the same purpose. I raised thee up that I might show my power and thee that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, is it the, the idea is that he raised him up to, to show his power. His intent in creating them from the beginning was to manifest this very thing. And and we refer to that theologically as superlapsarian thinking uh, in the fact that you have God determining both the elect and the reprobate from the foundation of the world. Not the idea here, you would have the idea of uh, nothing being expressed as all have fallen and then we pass by some and choose others. But rather, the intent is from the sovereignty of God and the way that he has determined to bring his will to pass in time and space. And all of that within the concept of these are acts of a sovereign God. Right. A sovereign right. God does all things. There's nothing, there's nothing left whatsoever. There's no place to allow for a crack of universalism to slip its foot in place. Right. And it's, uh, that's where in Romans 20, uh, 9, 22 and 23 says, what if God willing to show his wrath? Right. And to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. He puts up with them. Why? Uh, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Right. Which is, that's the amazing part, where you have to sort of fall back and go, I don't know how to receive that other than looking at the scriptures and seeing them as some sort of love letter that's sent from Christ to us, which is an amazing thought in the way that God deals with these vessels of mercy. Well, it only does that. It demonstrates to us the absolute sovereignty of God in the sense that we understand that, that he is greater than all of his creation. His creation, as a matter of fact, actually exists. As the scripture says, in him all things consist, and in him we move and have our being. In the understanding that God is greater than us, he is beyond us, he's beyond time and history, etc., etc., in space. These things were created by us. The creation was at his beck and call of what he wanted it to be. He didn't have many options. God doesn't think that way as an all-comprehensive, omniscient God. He thinks everything in one thought. It was a perfect will of which to determine to do what he wanted and to bring it to pass. But it also takes us to a point of humiliation in the sense that we humble ourselves and realize just absolutely how dependent as his creatures we are upon him, not only for our existence, but for our salvation as well. We who do not deserve it could not have deserved it, but out of his graciousness in eternity, he determined that we would be elect in his son. And then when his son dies and atones for our sins, all of this work that he's going to be talking about here, starting with election and on down, is a real demonstration of that love. And when we look at the people in the world, our goal and desire is to seek to bring them to that same gospel message as we were brought to it. But recognizing that in true humility, as Paul would say, we are what we are but 
by the grace of God. There is nothing, nothing we could ever stand before God and plead any cost before him. As Charles Spurgeon once said, and I thought it was one of the greatest statements, he said, when we stand before God, a bad excuse is worse than no excuse. (laughs) So Mm. no matter what we plead, no matter what we say, we have nothing to bring before the throne of God's grace. We simply bow in awe and worship him who redeemed us and the God who hath created and brought all things to pass. And, and to me, it doesn't have any place for pride. It has rather a place for humility that we look and see that it's God who suffered, not man. Mm. Exactly. Uh, Augustine, in a little bit further in his uh, Predestination of the Saints, deals with Romans 9, deals with a number of different passages. And uh, in chapter 34, in section 17, he talks about the special calling of the elect. Uh, and it's not because they have believed, but this kind of calling is there in order that they may believe. He's, and he's dealing with exactly what we were just speaking about in terms of uh, Romans and Paul. He says, let us then understand the calling whereby they become elected. Not those who are elected because they have believed, but who are elected that they may believe. Am I quoting Calvin, Luther? <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry, I'm quoting Augustine. So, for the Lord himself also sufficiently explains this calling when he says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. John fifteen sixteen. So, there is God electing that they may believe, not because they have believed or had done something. So he says, faith then, as well in its beginning as in its completion, is God's gift. That about sums up Augustine's idea of salvation. Faith from the beginning to the end is God's gift. And let no one have any doubt whatever, unless he desires to resist the plainest sacred writings, that this gift is given to some while to some, it is not given. But why is it not given to all? Ought not to disturb the believer who believes that from one all have gone into condemnation, which is undoubtedly most righteous. Right? Talking about the fall of Adam, everybody's fallen. Mm-hmm. So that even if none were delivered therefrom, <coughs> so even, even if no one was delivered from the fall, there would be no just cause for finding fault in God because God would then have to punish sin. So it's plain that it is a great grace for many to be delivered and to acknowledge in those that are not delivered what would be due to themselves so that he that glorieth may glory not as, an own, not as in, in his own merits, which he sees to be equaled in those that are condemned, but in the Lord. But why he delivers one rather than another? Here's why. Romans 11.33, his judgments are unsearchable and his ways past finding out. For it is better in this case for us to hear or to say, O man, who art thou that replies against God? And to dare to speak as if we could know what he has chosen to keep secret, since moreover, he could not will anything unrighteous. So Augustine's theology concerning salvation, God's sovereignty, and salvation of one over another is it's a gift of God. And he says, don't doubt whatsoever that 
This is the plain writing, the plainest sacred writings. This is what they say. This is what the scriptures say, and it's plain. This is not hard. Uh, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That's pretty plain. It's not of him that wills or him that runs, but God who shows mercy. That's pretty plain. So he's saying nobody should be doubting. This is what the scripture teaches plainly, unless, of course, you just want to resist what the scripture says. And he ends that by saying, who are you to talk against God? God gets to do whatever he wants to do. I remember one of my teachers in school used to say, God does what he jolly well pleases. That's what he does. This is he, why we use the term sovereign grace in referring to the, this doctrine, right? Right. Sovereign grace, God's sovereign ability, will, desire to save one and to not save all or not save another. Uh, and Augustine says, you know, if God left everybody in a state of fallenness and in just let them all go to hell, there would be no injustice with God because they all deserve that punishment as a result of being fallen in Adam. So they're already starting in the hole and there's nothing that they can do to get out of the hole and God would be completely just to send everyone to hell. That would be a just judgment on God's part if he wanted to do that. But he's gracious and he saves some, which is the amazing thought. It's not the Esau I hated part that is so difficult to deal with. It's the Jacob I loved part. That's the difficult part. Mm -hmm. That God would condescend and love sinners who rebelled against him. That's the amazing part. Seems like I've heard Charles Spurgeon quoted it on that particular point. The uh, amazing thing is that he would save anyone. Yes, yes, it is the amazing thing. That is the, the great question. And the way that Paul answers it either way is it's up to God. He's the potter. He gets to do what he wants. You know, praise be to God that he has saved some. That should press us even the more to look at grace as grace. Uh, why does God do that? Well, it's, it's all based on what God does in Christ. In the Enchiridion, he says, quote, as therefore that one man that is Christ, was predestined to be our head. So we being many are predestined to be his member. It's in Jesus Christ. Um, that's Ephesians, in Christ, in the beloved, in the beloved, over and over again. Uh, Ephesians is just this continuation of being in Jesus, being saved in him, predestinated in him. Beloved, that's the one that we're in, in Christ. So through Jesus and what it is that he's done, we have been made uh, to be members of his mystical body, predestined to be destined beforehand to that particular end. He then says, uh, a little further in the Enchiridion, he says, God used the very will of the creature, which is working in opposition to the creator's will as an instrument for carrying out his will. The supremely good, thus turning to good account even what is evil 
to the condemnation of those whom his justice has predestined to punishment. So for Augustine, God utilizes the will to be the factor or, or, or process which those who are saved to be saved and fallen to be fallen. The, the hardened heart is talking about the way that people react to the grace and goodness of God. And faith is the way that people react to the grace and goodness of God. So in one case or the other, God is utilizing the will. The creator is using that as an instrument to carry out his will. And he predestines some to go to heaven and he predestines others to go to hell. Uh, and even in the city of God, uh, another work that in and of itself is a, a fantastic work to read. He says, the human race we have distributed into two parts, the one consisting of those who live according to man, the other of those who live according to God. And these we also mystically call the two cities or the two communities of men, of which the one is predestined to reign eternally with God and the other to suffer eternal punishment with the devil. I mean, that is uh, two opposite extremes. These two cities, one's going to be in heaven, one's going to be in hell under the sovereignty of God. And God's community looks at one and sees how God is so gracious in saving them, yet they are aware at the same time as the devil is going to be punished, this other group is going to suffer eternal punishment along with the devil. And, of course, God is letting the... Or his will is being carried out in such a way that the individuals, whether they believe or do not believe, are doing what their will chooses to do. Is that right? Yes. It's never uh, an issue of he is going against their will in some way. For those who are being regenerated, he's changing their heart that their will is amiable to God to be able to exercise faith. That was the capacity of faith that he talked about earlier. For the reprobate and those who will suffer eternity in hell, he is simply giving them over, which is what he talks about in the beginning of, of Romans, to a reprobate mind. He gives them over. Instead of helping them, he doesn't help them. He instead gives them over and hardens them further by that giving over. And so there's never any violence done to the will of the creature in any way. Um, really, it's the opposite to that. The will of the creature is, is fixed by that divine gift of grace. But it's not hurt by the way that God works in and through the regenerate or not for in any way the reprobate. Um, but Augustine is is very keen on helping us understand that this sovereign God of the universe, uh, as he says in one place, uh, the wicked can't even lift a, a finger. They're not they don't even have the capacity to lift a, a finger unless it is the express will of the creator for them to do so. And so God orders everything, which is what's echoed in the Westminster a confession you know, God did by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And so this obviously is more amplified with salvation. Those who are saved, those who are lost. Um, in order to 
bring Augustine's thought uh, a little further, let's talk a little bit about perseverance, uh, because he has quite a bit to say in how election works in conjunction with perseverance. Uh, and he wrote a very long treatise on the gift of perseverance, uh, the preservation of the saints. And he says uh, in chapter chapter 14, For in Christ we have obtained a lot, being predestined according to his purpose, who worketh all things. This, therefore, is God's hand, not ours, that we depart not from God. That, I say, is his hand who said, I will put my fear in their hearts that they depart not from me. So what he's saying here is that not only does he change the heart, not only does he give the divine gift, but once that happens and they're predestinated according to his purpose that works all things for the good of those who love him, well, this is the work of God to then preserve the Christian, the believer, in God's saving power and will. There's none of this, okay, he changed the heart, he gave the divine gift, and then suddenly man falls away. It doesn't happen. Uh, God's hand, as he says, quote, not ours, that we depart not from God. Now, that doesn't give us at this particular point, which I just want to make a note of, it doesn't give us the license to sin since we can't fall away. Because when somebody is changed, they become vessels of mercy. Uh, he says, by his own good use of the reprobate, they are of advantage to the vessels of mercy, like we talked about before. Uh, we see as vessels of mercy what God does to the reprobate. That's grace to us. We, as vessels of mercy, receiving that divine gift and being predestined to that end and kept, we then will demonstrate the fruit of that change. If we don't demonstrate any fruit, that's problematic because at any time, if God changes the heart, uh, men are going to then be changed. You can't not be, you can't be changed and then not change. That's an impossibility. Based on what James even says, I'll show you my uh, faith by my works. Not that I'm justified by my works, but I'll show you that I actually have the capacity for true faith by the works that I do. So we as men can see one another and see what kind of person, or as Jesus said, what kind of tree bears good fruit or bad fruit. Um, at that point, in his work on the Trinity, I'll switch gears a little bit, give you a different quote. He says this, the redemption that we've received, he says this, in this redemption, the blood of Christ was given as it were as a price for us. Now, he's being very specific in the manner in which uh, people are saved and given this divine gift and changed. The blood of Christ was given for us by accepting which the devil was not enriched, but bound, a binding of the strong man done by the cross by what Christ has done, that we might be loosened from his bonds, that he might not with himself involve us in the meshes of sin and so deliver to the destruction of the second eternal death any one of those whom Christ, free from all debt, has redeemed by pouring out his own blood unindebtedly but that they who belong to the grace of Christ foreknown and predestinated and elected before the foundations of the world should only so far die as Christ himself died for them. In other words, only by the death of the flesh, not of the spirit. So 
we always hear people say, oh, the whole tulip thing and the L and limited atonement. That's this new idea that the reformers came up with. Now, this is what the gospel is about. This is exactly what Augustine says. Christ dies for those. He, he pours out his blood and saves them, which are the vessels of mercy. Redeemed people, this price was paid for us. And instead of being left out there to be tormented and be miserable in the meshes of sin, that the devil, as Augustine says, are going to lead people to the second and eternal death. In reverse of that, any one of those whom Christ frees then are secure. And he does that by his blood. Matt, up to this point, you've given us a lot here in particular, and we're just about out of time for this show, and we need to pick this up in our next presentation. But what is so interesting here, you have the sovereignty of God. You have God in his full sovereignty, creator, sustainer. Nothing comes into existence. Nothing comes to its proper place apart from him. We speak of grace alone as the work of, of God and salvation. It's faith alone. It's Christ alone. We have the doctrine of direct atonement you've just been talking about. Election, reprobation, perseverance. Talking about them in light of how we have good works and fruits that bear forth from that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the grace that has been given to us. We've talked about sin and depravity. That man isn't capable of bringing anything to negotiate a way in which God would be uh, bestowing upon him some type of favor. These are all the elements of what later becomes known as Calvinism. Every bit of it. Correct. Correct. Augustine was spearheading what the Bible had said. And you can read any one of his writings on the gift of perseverance. You can read on the Trinity, you can read the Enchiridion, you can read the Predestination of the Saints. All of them are going to say the same things and same ideas that the Reformers taught. Well, reform- if I could, just a, a kind of a sense of humor here, I hope you have one. If we were talking about UFOs and back engineering, if we back engineered Calvin, we'd find out Augustine was a Calvinist, wouldn't we? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Which I think is kind of funny. Yes, very much so. <clears throat> Well, listen, this is all excellent, and we want to continue this, and we're going to have to do that in our next show. I want to thank you, Dr. Matt. Uh, Sorry about the breakdown. As I told you, I have the flu, so I'm trying to stay up with this thing and got, unfortunately, under the situation where I couldn't control my coughing and had to leave. But thank you, Dr. Bill, for stepping in for me. We hope that this show has been informative. We want you to come back because we're going to pick up in our next show and its presentation and deal with Augustine. Continue this thinking, this presentation by Dr. Matt, which is excellent. I hope that you are seeing that the early church, as we are showing you in the grassroot expression of God's grace and salvation, has always tended toward the line of what we historically referred to as Calvinism, a nickname, identifying a particular theology of God's salvation by grace alone. Nothing, nothing man can bring to merit redemption with God, but it is wholly and solely of God's own free will. 
Dr. Matt, thank you so much for, for coming and making this presentation. We look forward to you completing this presentation in our next show. Dr. Bill, thanks for your work here tonight. Lord bless, and we pray that as you consider these things very prayerfully, stop and think how God had blessed the church in its early development as Augustine himself has come and begun to systematize much of what Dr. Matt and I have talked about in the early church fathers. Now the parts are all coming together to make a complete whole, a complete system of theology. With that, Lord bless. Please pray for us and let others know about our show. Thank you. God bless. Are you considering seminary education? Let Whitfield Theological Seminary provide your educational needs. Whitfield offers master and doctoral degree programs through distance education in ministry, theological studies, biblical counseling, and Christian education. You can complete your studies for the ministry or other church vocations in the privacy of your home in conjunction with your local church. For students who have never been to college, check out the Bachelor Divinity Degree Program. Whitfield also offers lay study programs. Go to www.whitfield.edu for additional information. Remember, Whitfield offers classical reform theological education. Whitfield Theological Seminary, training a new generation of ministers around the world to disciple the nations in the theology of the Reformation. Parents, are you looking for a college to send your children to in the near future? Hi, I'm Dr. Randall Talbot, the Executive Vice President and Academic Dean of Whitfield College. Let me share with you why I think you should consider Whitfield College. First, Whitfield brings a Christian college education home to you. We are a distant learning online institution. Second, Whitfield provides a biblical worldview college education. Third, affordability. Because we are a distance learning institution, we can provide a high academic education that you can afford. The average tuition for most online colleges is $300 or more per credit hour. At Whitfield, we charge $80 per credit hour. Fourth, graduates from Whitfield College are highly educated in the majors that we provide. We have graduates that have entered graduate schools all across the country in various different fields. Institutions like the University of Massachusetts of North Dartmouth, Liberty University Law School, and various seminaries. If you would like further information, you may visit the Whitfield College website at whitfieldcollege.org or you may call the college offices at 863-683-7899. I am looking forward to hearing from you. A Puritan's Mind is a website dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. Located at www.apuritansmind.com, its purpose is to help those visitors, over 50 million since 1998, to enjoy God and His gracious gospel of redemption through Jesus Christ. It's called A Puritan's Mind because it houses one of the largest selections of writings from the 17th century covering Christian authors such as 
Alexander Henderson, Samuel Rutherford, Jeremiah Burroughs, and a whole host of Westminster ministers of the Puritan age. But that's not all. There are sections on the website on church history, historical theology, and doctrinal aspects covering justification, the doctrines of grace, family worship, Christian stewardship, and much, much more. A Puritan's mind has even reached out over into the Reformed book market with Puritan publications. We have published over a dozen works, including The Covenant of God by Thomas Blake and one of the most popular introductions to covenant theology called A Simple Overview of Covenant Theology by Dr. Matthew McMahon. All works are available in digital formats as well. You can even acquire an all-in-one special DVD that contains many out-of-fruit works, sermons, and books from the Puritans and Reformers. Visit us at www.apuritansmind.com for more information and do all to the glory of God. You've been listening to Whitfield Radio. Whitfield Radio is a division of Whitfield College and Theological Seminary. Music is provided by our friend, Dr. Phil Kage, and we encourage you to visit his website at philkage.com, P-H-I-L-K-E-A-G-G-Y dot com. This is Dr. Bill Sullivan saying thank you for joining us and check out our website for the next scheduled show. Our website is whitfieldmedia.com W-H-I-T-E-F-I-E-L-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com whitfieldmedia.com Cover me, clothed in your own righteousness, I